morning, Stonebridge. My name is Matt. Good to be here with you this morning. Um, Shane, can we get that snack video? I just love that thing. Or isn't it going to work? Next week? Okay, next week. It's going to be awesome. So it's, it's clear that God is actively up to something here at Stonebridge Church. And it's really easy to see that with like a renovation and two services coming and all. Um, but what really matters is that lives are being changed, right? I mean, and, and also that we're, we're loving on our community and people are noticing. So I got an email a couple weeks ago from uh, someone in our church and they said this. They said, I just wanted to pass on to you that people in my office are talking about Stonebridge. I work with several people who live in Boone and do not attend church. I just wanted you to know that they have taken notice of the community efforts that our church has put forth. They commented on, on how involved Stonebridge is in the community of Boone and how awesome they think that is. Just wanted you and your team to know that all of these efforts that you are making are really positive, making a really positive impact on the community. So I just think that's incredible. Like people who don't go to church are noticing, okay, you guys really care about this community, and that's our heart. We want to love people uh, and, and, and help them come to know and obey Jesus. So excited to see what God does next round here. Um, excited to see who he changes next as well. So we've been walking through the book of Judges, and we're going to be in Judges chapter 4 and 5 this morning, and it's clear in these chapters at that time that God was up to something. That God was actively working in the lives of his people. So, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll jump into Judges chapter 4 together. So God, I pray that you would show us very clearly how you're actively involved in this story, Lord. But I pray that it wouldn't stop there. I pray that we would then open our eyes up to how you're actively involved in our everyday lives as we walk through our week, Lord. We don't want to just read a nice story where it says, oh yeah, God's up to something. We want to, we want to experience that as we walk through our day. So just give us fresh eyes to see how you're working in our lives, God. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, I'm going to read chapter 4 and make some comments as we go along. And I want to point out uh, the cycle going on. There's this cycle going on in Judges that happens over and over and over. And we talked about it the first week. Rudy talked about it last week. Uh, so in verse 1, the first part of the cycle is that God's people do evil. 4 verse 1. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud. So they're doing evil. And it's interesting that they started doing evil after Ehud, which was their former leader and judge, died. Okay, now any parents in the room, you know what this is like, right? So you're in the room, your kids are playing, everything's great. You leave the room, you come back, and Junior's in the corner crying because Sissy hit him, and she's over there, no, I didn't, and it's just chaos, right? You know what this is like. We, under, we understand this. Your leader is gone. And all chaos just breaks loose. That's what's happening here. So the first part of the cycle, God's people do evil. There's chaos. Verse 2. And the Lord sold them into the land of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoim. A lot of, a lot of really great names of places and people in this chapter. Um, but the second part of the cycle is that God justly judges 
his people for doing evil, right? And we know, we know that that is uh, a good thing. Any parents in here know that, uh, that you need to discipline your kids uh, or else uh, it's, not, it's not loving. You don't actually love them well if, if you don't correct them when you need to correct them. Uh, and discipline them. So that's what God is doing in verse 2. And then verse 3, Israel cries out to God. It says, Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron. And he oppressed the people of Israel, Israel cruelly for 20 years. 900 chariots. Did you catch that? Again, these people are more like, God's people are more just crying out, going, help, where are you, God? What are you doing? They're more mad at God than going, God, help, I love you, I need you. No, they're just going, what? Are you kidding me, God? And if I was God, thankfully I'm not, if I was God, I'd be like, yeah, you want to complain to me? Have fun with that, see you later. No, but instead, he answers their cry. And in chapter 4, verse 4 through 24, God saves them. God shows mercy on them through judges. So verse 4, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lipidoth, was judging Israel at that time. Okay, so women in the room. This is your week. This is your chapter, okay? Deborah, we got, we got a woman Taking the lead, okay? So here we go. Verse 5. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. The people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army. Sisera, remember that name. He's, uh, he's imp- an important character here. General of Jabin's army to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops. And I will give him into your hand. Also remember that these troops, these 900 chariots are by a river. That will be significant. But just wait. All right. So where were we? Verse... Eight, thank you. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. What a wimp. Oh, what, I mean, what a wimp of leader. This guy's like, oh, Mommy, I'll go if you come with me. I mean, come on, dude. All right, more on that later. Uh, verse 9, she said, I will surely go with you. None, nevertheless, the road on which you are going will, lead to, will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. So most, pe- most people, when you read this, you're like, oh, okay. Um, so Deborah's going to get the glory here. She's not, actually. She, this, is a, this is a prophecy. Some other female is going to get the glory. And I don't think Barak is going to get the glory because he's being a wimp. So, now we have verse uh, 10. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Verse 11. Verse 11 is weird. It's just strange. It introduces this weird dude named Heber. Okay? Because remember, we have 10,000 troops. They're about to attack. Now let's talk about some random guy. And then they talk about the fight again. But it is significant. So, just remember this guy Heber. Verse 
11. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far as the oak in Zananim. There's a really fun one. Which is near Kadesh. So there's Heber. Just remember him. He left his tribe and he's off on his own. Okay? Yeah. He's, He's over there. So, verse 12. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Hirosheth Hagoim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak, Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. Okay, verse 14, I think is the most important verse in this chapter. And here's why. Because God is the one who's all over this. Right? The Lord has given Sisera into your hand. The Lord will go out before you. God is actually the main character in this chapter. God is the main character in the whole Bible. He uses Deborah. He uses Barak. But the real judge in these chapters, the real leader of Israel, is God. He's the one who's making it happen. Verse 15. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harosheth Hagoim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera, here's another wimp, fled away. Did you read that? All of his troops were killed. He's the leader and he's running away. Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. The guy from verse 11, the random dude, he's coming into the picture. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor. He's an evil king. He has peace with the house of Heber, the Kenite. The Kenites were uh, allies of the Israelites and loosely related as well. You saw in there the son-in-law of Moses. So they're, they're related to the Israelites, related to God's people. They had good relations. So this guy is going rogue, okay, and siding with this evil king. And that's where Sisera ends up. And so uh, Heber's wife, Jael, verse 18, And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said, uh, how, you know, how hospitable. Here's a rug for you. Um, anyway, and he said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened up a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. Okay, he asked for water, and she gives him milk. Now, for some reason, when your kids can't go to sleep, you're supposed to give them warm milk. Why? I don't get it. Warm milk is nasty. But anyway, uh, she's doing that because she's trying to get him to go to sleep. And here's why. Verse 20. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes out and asks you, if, is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him. And drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. Man, 
So if you thought the Bible was boring, you haven't read this story, right? Driving a tent peg into this guy's temple. So he died. Oh, thank you. I thought he lived through that. Uh, Verse 22, and behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, come and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went to her tent and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. Gross. She just leaves him there. You know, wow. Verse 23. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. All right. I want to make three observations, three points from this scripture. And we're not really going to get into chapter five. Um, Chapter five is a song written about what happened in chapter four. So you can take a look at that later. But the first thing that that is all over this chapter, and I already hinted at it, is that God is actively involved in the lives of his people. God is clearly actively involved in the lives of his people. So four verse two says the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin. Okay, he could have said that. God allowed them to be sold. But no, God is the cause. God sold them. Okay, he's actively involved, even in their discipline, because he loves them. And even foreign kings are used by God for his purposes here. It's very interesting. Jabin is is an evil dude, an evil king against the things of God, and God is using him in his sovereign plan. And then 4 verse 6. Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? This is really interesting. This is Deborah talking to Barak. God picks the person he wanted to lead and deliver this message, Deborah. God picks the person he wanted to lead the troops, Barak. And then God picks how many people he wanted in his army, 10,000. Even down to the person. Do you see how intimately involved God is in the details here? 4 verse 7. I will draw out Sisera to meet you by the river Kishon. God positions the enemy right where he wants them. Right by this river. In 4 verse 9, the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. This is a prophecy. Deb is given a prophecy about a woman who we learned is J.L. At the end of the chapter, who ends up defeating Sisera in a pretty horrific way. 4 verse 11, we see that God even uses this guy Heber's U-Haul, so to speak. He uses this random guy who decides to move for his purposes. God weaves everything together. He uses the finest of details. And then 4 verse 15, it says, the Lord routed Sisera. How did the Lord route Sisera? Well, we, we actually learn how he did it from chapter 5. Both in verse 4 and verse 21, you can check it out yourself. We learn that it's a downpour and a flood. Now, chariots, I've, I'm, I've never been on a chariot. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen a chariot. But I do know that an that a iron chariot wouldn't do well in a flood. Okay? Uh, so God creates this downpour by this river so it floods. Uh, and that's how God defeats them. And you might think, okay, well... Floods happen, downpours happen. How do we know this was really God? Well, it was dry season at the time. And dry season in this region means that if it rained, if it just rained at all, it would be like snow in July in Iowa. 
And if it snows in July in Iowa, I'm gone. I'm moving south. Okay? Done. All right? It doesn't happen. It's impossible. I, I grew up in Iowa. It's never, it's never happened, at least in my lifetime. And pray it never does. But that's what happens here. There's no doubt this is God, and God wanted to show off and go, this is me. This is not you, Barak, and your troops. This is me defeating this army. And then in 4, verse 23, it says, On that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people. See, God gets the credit. God gets the glory. God is the one who did it. He's actively involved from start to finish in this story. God is actively involved in your life too. So often I find myself trying to steal glory from God by by claiming his work as my own, right? I got this degree. I got this job. I I got the spouse and, and these friends that I have. But here's the thing. God gave me the money and the intellect to get that degree. God gave me the job that I have. God gave me the friends and the family that I have. God placed me in Boone. God placed you in Boone, Ogden, Jefferson, Dayton, wherever you live. God placed you there. God placed your neighbors right next to you for a reason. Just as a side note, do you know their names? Have you had them over for dinner? I mean, I think when God said, love your neighbor as yourself, he actually meant our physical neighbors as much as everyone else. God saw you in your sinful mess. God saw me in my sinful mess and provided a Savior, Jesus Christ, to save me from my sins through his death and resurrection. God orchestrated you coming. If you know Jesus, he orchestrated all of that for you to come to know and trust Jesus. God does crazy stuff in the details. So, story. When we were um, spring of, I don't even know what year that was, 15, I think. um, We didn't even know we were going to be moving to Boone. I wasn't even looking for anything. But my wife noticed this cardinal in our backyard, okay? And she was just obsessed with it. Like, it seemed to be the same cardinal because it would always land in the same spot. And so she was taking lots of pictures with this cardinal. And um, well, it came about that this job uh, was open and they were asking me to come and, and help plant this church. And um, she was sitting in my office with my kids one day because we were trying to sell our house and it was on the market. So we had to be out of the house. So they were at my office, and she looks over, and like a good Iowa State fan, I had, uh, I had Cy, you know, a little beanbag Cy over here, which is a cardinal, right? So she's like, huh, we're moving to Ames area. There's a cardinal. I'm seeing this cardinal, and she's like, yeah, probably not anything. Then we're looking for houses here in Boone, and we go to our house to visit um, to visit this house, the house that we actually ended up buying and that we live in right now. And she sees a cardinal perched. I think it was right on the mailbox. And I know this might sound crazy, but this re- God really used that to bring a lot of assurance to her that, yes, this is where you're supposed to be. This is what you're supposed to do. Now, does God always work that way in, in the super intimate details? Absolutely not. Okay? Not everything is a sign from God. But sometimes he does. 
And we need to have our eyes wide open for those things. Because God is involved in the details. Be alert. He's at work in your everyday life. Second thing I want to note about this chapter is that God actively uses women in significant ways. God actively uses women in significant ways. So the first woman, Deborah, she calls herself in chapter 5, verse 7, a mother in Israel. I think that's a great way to view her. So she was a leader, but she was, she was mothering these people. 4, verse 4, she says she was judging Israel at that time, and she was a prophetess. She was the voice of God to his people at that time. But she also humbly refused to take roles that were meant for men. See, she encouraged, in verses 6 and 7, she encouraged Barak to lead God's people into battle. Because that's what happened. Men would take charge of the military at that time. So she was deferring to them. She humbly refused to take roles meant for men. Yet she didn't hesitate to step up when it was necessary either. She relayed God's messages to Barak and to other people. Then you have Jael, who was providentially used to kill an evil military leader, Sisera. She's just an ordinary woman. She had no high position like Deborah. No one knew who she was. She's just going about everyday life. And God uses her. But we're left with a big theological question here. Why did God use Jael deceiving and killing a guy? And then God praised her for it. Why? Well, 5 verse 24 says, Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, of ten dwelling women most blessed. So this is God's word, and Jael is called blessed for doing this pretty bloody act. Why? Here's why. I think, I think this closes the case. 5 verse 28. Out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera. Remember the Sisera is the military leader, her mom's wailing through the lattice, waiting for her son to come home. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man. Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera. Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. See, Sisera's, wife, or Sisera's mother just cares about her getting these, these lovely clothes. I just want the clothes out of the deal. Why don't you get home, son? But do you see what he gets out of the deal? A womb or two for every man. Sisera would conquer and rape women. That's what was happening here. So it was just and good for God to get rid of this man in a pretty cruel way. Because that's what he was doing and that's what he would have done to the people of Israel. And Jael obeyed God. She obeyed God rather than people. She obeyed God rather than her husband. Because her husband was asking her to go along with an evil king. And she said, no. I'm following God. I'm obeying God. See, Heber was disobedient to God, but Jael didn't go along with it. She was right to do that. Why did God use these women? It's a complex question. Why did God use these women? I think there's two 
pretty solid answer to that. First is that women are incredibly significant to God in his plans. J.D. Greer, a pastor, said this. There's been a false dichotomy put forward in the church. Either you believe there is no distinction of roles at all, talking about gender roles, or you believe women can only serve in some kind of diminutive role because they don't have the capacity to lead. We need to reject both sides of the dichotomy, that God doesn't give women the same gifts he does men, or that there is no distinction of roles in the church. The Bible teaches equality of position. That means everyone, man, woman, is of the same value. And equality of gifting. That just means all the gifts that that we looked at in 1 Corinthians and that are mentioned in the Bible, all the spiritual gifts are available to both genders, but with distinctive roles to play in the family and the church. And those distinctive roles are that men are to lead in the home and men are to lead in the church. And women thrive when they come under that loving leadership of men. And we saw that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So women, use your gifts and abilities to honor God. Maybe in a really upfront spotlight way like Deborah. In teaching and leading in appropriate ways in the church. Or sharing your God story with people. How God has changed your life. Go on mission trips. Lead groups in the community. Or in your work that are for the common good to bless other people. Or maybe just in really ordinary ways like JL. Teaching your kids about Jesus. Reaching out with kindness and love to your neighbors. Not participating in gossip at work. Being a listening ear to hurting people in your life can go a long way. We need more Deborahs. We need more JLs who humbly, courageously use their gifts and abilities to honor God. That's my prayer for my wife. That's my prayer for my daughter, Joy. It's my prayer for every woman in here, that you would humbly, courageously use your gifts to honor God. Okay, but again, why did God use these women? First reason, women are incredibly significant to God and his plans. Second reason, it's simply that men were acting like boys during this time. Barak, okay? Verse 8, I won't go unless Debbie comes with me. Come on, dude. I mean, granted, it was with these 900 chariots. It was like the Navy SEALs going up against the Girl Scouts, okay? Um, it, it wasn't exactly a fair fight. But come on, dude, you got God himself on your side. Don't be a wimp. Don't act like a boy. Heber, okay? He is an Israelite for all practical purposes. And he's at peace with an evil king who was against Israel. The priests. Did you notice the priests in this chapter? I didn't either. Deafening silence from the priests. They were supposed to be the spiritual leaders of Israel at that time, and they're nowhere to be found. Deafening silence. They're acting like boys. So here's the challenge to me. Here's the challenge to all the men in the room. Stop acting like boys. Focus on the family research found that if a child is the first to become a believer in Jesus, there's a 3.5% chance that the rest of the family will become a Christian. But if the mother converts first, 
the number raises to 17%. That's pretty good. But if it's the father who believes in Jesus first, the percentage raises to 93% that the whole family comes to know Jesus. See, men, us acting like boys will affect lives for eternity. We need to reject passivity. Don't be like Barak. Reject passivity. Lead your families in prayer. Lead your families in discussions about Jesus. Don't compromise. Don't be like Heber. Don't cuddle up to sin and make it your friend. It's not. Battle it like a man. You know, I know a couple guys I just met with this week who are meeting up weekly and asking each other hard questions going, hey, how's your marriage going? How are you doing leading your family spiritually? How are you doing pursuing, your, pursuing God? Asking these tough questions of each other. How are you doing uh, keeping your mind and your heart and your eyes away from things that are not honoring to God? How are you doing at that? Joey and I do that together every week because we need it because we're so prone to wander. Got to band together, not compromise, not cuddle up to sin, but battle it. Men, we also need to accept responsibility. Don't be like the priests. I don't know what they were doing at that time, but it couldn't have been anything good. Lead yourself and your family to God. Make church a priority. Make prayer a priority. Make your Bible a priority. Make God a priority. So, God's up to something in this chapter, clearly. He's actively involved, and he uses women in a significant way. The third thing I want to note from this section is that singing is the natural response to God's activity. 5, verse 1. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day. They sang. Okay, they could have done many different things to praise God for what just happened, to thank Him, to praise Him for all that just happened. But instead, they sang a song. They wrote a song. Isn't that the book of Psalms? It's God's people responding to God's activity and God's involvement with a song to God. They could have done all sorts of things. They could have said thank you. They could have shouted. They could have named their children something to remember what God did, like Kishon or Tent Peg. Okay, that, that'd be pretty ridiculous, but um, you never know these days with, with kids' names. But they sang. They sang a song. Why? Why should we sing in response to God's activity in our lives? And why did they sing? Well, I think two main reasons. The first reason to help our heads connect with our hearts. See, it's totally different me saying amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me than singing it, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. I start to believe it. It starts to go beyond just something I know that God poured out his grace on me, even though I didn't deserve it. Now it's like, yes, I'm in it. I believe it. Responding emotionally. Responding wholeheartedly to the truth. 
The second reason, so it helps our head meet our heart, but it also helps us remember God's activity. Any of you who are involved in VBS, okay, our songs were straight scripture, which was awesome, but I can't get them out of my head, right? And this is the testimony, God. I just, I can't get those songs out of my head, but I love that. I was just singing 1 John 5.11 without even thinking about it. See, singing Helps us remember stuff. And if you're anything like me, you need help remembering stuff. Okay? I'm going to, I, man, my memory is bad now at 31. Uh, I feel bad for Heather when I get older. So here's the challenge. And I'll invite the worship team. You can start heading up. Here's the challenge. Sing. Sing to God throughout your week. I often take, just get my guitar out, have my family, gather my family around, we just sing praises to God, and it's awesome. So when God is clearly working in your family, get together and sing praise. You don't have to be able to play an instrument. YouTube's your friend. The radio's your friend. Spotify, we're, we're blessed with so many options. But when God does something incredible in your life, is that your response, where you get together and sing? You don't have to be a good singer to do it either. Second response we need to have to this is, is just to sing wholeheartedly here at church. When you come, sing like God is actually up to something. Because He always is. He's always worthy of our praise and song. That's why we sing every Sunday here. Don't let your voice quality or the fear of the person next to you get in the way or hold you back from singing loudly from singing expressively. So, let's stand up together now and let's have the worship team lead us in singing praise to God for His active involvement in our lives.